0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air, I'm Don Marsh. Today, a conversation with Temple Grandin, the Ph.D. animal scientist, inventor, and author, who is also autistic and an autism activist, has added yet another book to her resume. This one's for young people and is titled Calling All Minds, How to Think and Create Like an Inventor. Temple Grandin, wonderful to see you again.
1: Great to be here.
0: What are you up to with this book? What's your mission?
1: Well, I've got all my childhood projects in this book. When I was a young kid, when I was in third and fourth grade, my favorite book was all about famous inventors. I just loved reading about that. Also, my grandfather was an inventor. He was the co-inventor of the autopilot for airplanes. So when I was young, I used to ask him endless questions like, why is the sky blue? Why is the grass green? And one of the projects I've got in the book is my bird kite, which I made out of a piece of rough surface art paper. Mm -hmm. And when I went back to recreate the bird kite, I couldn't get the same art paper. File folder doesn't fly quite the same way. So I've got a whole bunch of interesting things about aviation and rough surfaces, like why golf
0: balls have dimples. And most interesting indeed. But what are you trying to do? Get kids interested in science or or what?
1: I want to get kids just interested in making things. Uh, you know, when I grew up in the 50s, kids made things. And I've just been to two schools already uh, promoting this book, uh, uh, Calling All Minds, and They have maker spaces and the kids just love making all kinds of stuff from complicated stuff with 3D printers to very, very simple things like paper snowflakes that I made as a kid just by cutting out pieces of paper.
0: Mm. A lot of concern in the country today because uh, so few children seem to be interested in science anymore and that's creating problems for us uh, going forward.
1: We also have a huge shortage of skilled trades. Yes. I've worked all my professional life on designing livestock facilities. I worked with skilled tradespeople, especially in steel work. They were the creative guy that today would be labeled autistic, dyslexic, ADHD, the rotten student. But they took welding in high school, and it literally saved them. Now, skilled trades aren't for everybody. But I'd say about 25 percent of these kids that are kind of different. That's where they ought to go. And great jobs, they're not going to get replaced by
0: computers. Do you have any concerns they're spending too much time on social media and on their devices?
1: Too much time on devices. We need to get that limited because kids that spend hours a day playing video games, some of them get addicted to video games. And what I'm seeing is they get holed up in the basement, even though they're kids that get good grades and not going anywhere. Another thing I've talked about in many of my books and in my writings is learning how to work. When I was 13... Mother got me a sewing job with a freelance seamstress, and I took apart dresses and hemmed them. Then I went away to a special boarding school after getting thrown out of ninth grade for fighting. And for (laughs) the first three years, I ran their horse barn. That didn't exactly please my family, but I was learning how to work. And then later on in my time at that school, my great science teacher, Mr. Carlock, came on the scene, and he gave me interesting projects to do, and that got me interested in science you got to give kids interesting stuff to do. I even described my hotel room experiments with boats. Mm. Those wide, heavy-bottomed water glasses, they make perfect boats. Coffee cups don't.
0: Did When you were growing up and going through this phase of, of experimenting and creating, um, did you know and did people around you know that you were on the spectrum?
1: Well, I had severe speech delay. I didn't talk until age four. And I fortunately had very good early intervention with a really good speech therapist. But there's a lot of kids that are just socially awkward, and they're on the milder end of the autism spectrum, and they have no friends. And some of the best stuff they could be doing would be music or making things and getting friends who shared interests. And just the two schools I've been to, I was looking at second graders just making all kinds of stuff out of paper and cardboard, and they were having a total blast But kids are not going to get interested in making things unless they get exposed to it. Mm -hmm. And all the projects I have in Calling All the Mines are really cheap and inexpensive to do. I think robotics is great. But I think some of the robotics are getting way too expensive. They need to go to a junkyard class where it's take apart a forklift pallet. We'll we'll give you some electronics that's uh, we bought. But then the rest of it, uh, forklift pallet, bicycle parts. You know, just figure out how to do it.
0: And now we're entering the realm of artificial intelligence, which takes us to a whole new dimension with the robots plus.
1: Well, I've been following very closely the jobs that are going to get lost from artificial intelligence. And some of them are very high-end jobs like radiologist, cancer doctor. That's going to mm-hmm. get replaced by artificial intelligence. But frontline jobs, teachers, nurses, people who work on the front lines, and skilled trades – Um, I've been in two hotels in the last month that had water problems. Mm -hmm. And it had to do with the infrastructure uh, falling apart out in the street. And there's always going to be jobs for skilled trades. There's always going to be jobs for teachers and nurses and and those kinds of
0: jobs. You remind me of my father because he always said there are too many chiefs and not enough Indians. We're always going to need bricklayers. We're going to need plumbers. We're going to need skilled tradesmen. As you And I'm going
1: to estimate for the kids that are different. And I was just reading an article today about how a lot of low-income kids were getting overdiagnosed with ADHD.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I think one of the biggest problems is we're not doing enough hands-on things in the schools. Mm -hmm. I spent hours tinkering with uh, parachutes to make them open better, Mm -hmm. tinkering with a little bird kite that I made that had winglets just like modern jets have got. And I had to tinker with it to get it to work, weight it with just the right amounts of tape. And a lot of kids today, they're afraid to make mistakes. Yes, a lot of my stuff didn't work, and I had to tinker and tinker and tinker until I got it to work. And you're going to have to tinker with my bird kite because the art paper I had as a kid is not readily available.
0: Well, another part of the problem, I think, and maybe you do too, is the fact that these days in schools, there's not so much time to to tinker with anything because they're being taught to the test, and that seems to be the most important Well, and that doesn't
1: that doesn't turn into careers. I've seen a lot of kids that are straight A students are ending up holding up the basement playing video games, and they're not learning how to program them. Mm -hmm. Other things that ought to be introduced to young kids is coding. And I went to a big computer conference, and they had this neat little plastic electronic ball, and you programmed it with an iPad to move around on the floor in different ways. Mm -hmm. Well, that's teaching coding, but then that coding is going back and interacting with the real world, which is something that I like. And they even had it set up where two balls would play soccer, and you'd have to program them Um, because there's jobs in coding. Um, you know We've got to start looking at where kids are going to end up in school. And a really famous executive said one time, I it's more important to know where you want to end up than knowing where to start. You need to have a goal. And one of the things that motivated me to study when I was in high school and I was a rotten student before that was now I wanted to become a scientist. Now there was a goal.
0: How do we motivate kids today? You talk about how we have to start and the things we have to do, but there has to be some motivating factor out there. Wh- wh- whose responsibility is that? Where does that motivation come well,
1: from? Well, I think it starts with just getting kids out doing things when they're really young. Um, you know, when I finally saw winglets appear on real commercial jets, mm-hmm. you know, years later, I'm going, well, I was making those as a child. Yeah. And now the different Aircraft manufacturers have come up with all different kinds of weird designs. I have those in my PowerPoint presentation. Mm -hmm. I've got copies of patents, and um, calling all minds, and looking up patents is lots of fun because things like the winglets are simply shapes. The patent is for a shape. It's a patent so simple a second grader can understand it.
0: I I was interested in that part of your book and your fascination with patents since uh, a very young age.
1: Well, I couldn't look at patents as a young age, but I was fascinated with just making things and figuring out how things worked. And I had three little projects I worked with a lot as a young kid, a little bird kite. I'm also making a parachute I could throw up into the air and make it open, and I made crossbars out of coat hanger wire so it would open up better. And then when I went on Google Patents, I actually found some things in real parachutes that sort of resembled that. you got to remember when I was a child, there was no way to look up patents. There, there, but I'm fa- I was always fascinated with the Encyclopedia Britannica's, the Book of Knowledge, the World Book. Uh, those were the Internet of our time just you know reading about all kinds of different things
0: i wonder if we're not caught in a generational thing when you were growing up and i was growing up you know there was not uh, so much television and not so many distractions as there are today and we did have to make things to play with and and we would get on our bike and be on the bike all day and we would make those parachutes that you're talking
1: well about. we just built things out of you know tree houses out of junk wood and spending all kinds of time outside and looking at stuff i had an experience um during the eclipse then on, on our campus at Colorado State University, uh, when the eclipse, when it's at 95 percent, uh, shines through the trees, the trees act like little pinhole cameras. And you can see the little mini eclipses. I noticed the weird shadows. I didn't know eclipses made weird shadows in mm-hmm. trees. I noticed them. But this was in front of our library, and students just walked over that and didn't notice it. You know, I also want to see kids just getting to be more observant of of things around them.
0: At the university, we're not talking about kids per se, we're talking talking about about young adults. Exactly. And
1: the eclipse, we didn't have a total eclipse at CSU, but we had like a 90, 95% eclipse. And it happened right when the classes were changing, and the students were just walking over these weird shadows. I didn't know eclipses made weird shadows. And I took pictures of it. I'm going to be showing that in my PowerPoint presentation tonight at the uh, St. Louis Library.
0: While you're mentioning the St. Louis Library, let me tell our audience that uh, that event is sold out, which is testimony to your popularity. However, the video of the uh, performance or appearance, I should say, is going to be streamed on HEC-TV. So folks who can't get there will still have a chance to uh, to see you. Back to the conversation. Where is all of this taking us, do you think?
1: Well, a lot of kids, when they get exposed to making things, and some schools now are really starting to get into the maker movement. I went into a great school yesterday. Well, they had sewing machines in there, along with the 3D printers, and then along with just cardboard and and simple stuff, too, for kids to make stuff.
0: Were you doing this sort of thing as a young person uh, out of any kind of necessity, or was it just curiosity?
1: Well, when I was seven and eight years old and I was messing yeah. around yeah. with parachutes and bird kites, I was just doing it for play. I loved things that flew. I just if it flew, that was my favorite thing. So I'd make things that flew.
0: And that, I guess, is genetic. I want to pick up on that point because you mentioned your grandfather a moment ago. I have to take a break now. We're talking with Temple Grandin, who is the author of a brand new book. I believe it's book number 13, and the title of it is Calling All Minds, How to Think and Create Like an Inventor. Back in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And now we are back with Temple Grandin. Her book is Calling All Minds, How to Think and Create Like an Inventor. I wanted to get back to your grandfather. You mentioned early on that he was an inventor, uh, and he uh, invented or was uh, partially responsible for the autopilot in airplanes.
1: Yeah, he was the co-inventor. There was another person named Andrew Nickian. And Andrew Nickian came up with an idea of three coils put in kind of like a Mm -hmm. uh, tri-pointed hat pattern. And all the aviation companies thought this was just stupid. They were trying to connect the plane steering directly up to a magnetic compass. And that was a big mess because the compass is always constantly moving. But my grandfather looked at this idea and goes, I can make this work, when all the other companies thought it was crazy. And he made it work. And it went into every plane in World War II. Um, and then in the 70s, I had a chance to visit the company that was still making them. And it's called the Flux Valve. And somebody there, the company goes, oh, those are simple little things. And I said, those simple little things are not easy to think of.
0: Did you have a chance to talk to your grandfather about this and, and that kind of activity?
1: Well, we used to just talk a lot about science, science. Um, you know, why do tides go in and out? And at one of our vacation places, they had tide gates. And the way tide gates work is when the tide shifts, the gates would close and prevent a cove from turning into mud flat. Mm-hmm. I found that fascinating. And he would just sit there and answer my science questions. So when I went to visit Granny and Grandfather, all the other grown-ups were in the living room, and Grandfather and I would just sit and talk science. And when he got old and he ended up in a nursing home, he was telling all the... Nurses, is why the Nile River runs in the opposite direction and things like that.
0: Well, clearly he was an inspiration to you.
1: Well, yeah, definitely. And, yeah. and uh, MIT-trained engineer.
0: Yeah. MIT. Okay. There we go again. MIT has produced a few of them over the years, yeah. hasn't it? Your interest in animal science, Uh, what motivated you to move in that direction?
1: Well, I got exposed to animals. I Mm. think a really important thing on what careers students go into, they've got to get exposed to things. I think another problem you have today, since some schools have taken out so many hands-on classes, is kids aren't getting exposed to enough things to figure out what Mm. they might want to do. Horses was a really big activity for me in high school. My boarding school had a little dairy, so I got exposed to dairy cattle at 14. I went out to my aunt's ranch at 15 and got exposed exposed to beef cattle. Again, no background in agriculture. Now, I've got graduate students that have come out from the East, no background in agriculture, starting to do things with cattle and finding out that they like it. So this brings up another important thing. I tell college students, do career-relevant internships. Try on careers. Find out what you're going to like. You also need to find out what you're going to hate, too. Mm. That's equally important.
0: You say you were exposed to horses and to cattle uh, early on. As a teenager. And and this piqued your interest. Where did you want this to take you?
1: Well, the first thing I ever did with cattle is I noticed as they were going through shoots to be vaccinated that they'd... They'd stop moving if they saw a reflection on a vehicle, a shadow, a chain hanging down, a person standing up in front of them, visual distractions. Other people didn't notice this. Now, at the time that I was noticing this, I did not know that I thought in pictures. I thought everybody thought in pictures. So it was obvious to me to look at what cattle were seeing, but not so obvious to other people. Well, I think this is the reason why most of the students... Uh, walked over the eclipse shadows and didn't see them. Uh, they're just not a visual thinker. And visual thinking helped me in my work with animals because I thought about what the animal was seeing. Also, I don't think in words. An animal doesn't think in words. You're going to think in pictures, sound. Okay, the sound of this vehicle feeds me. This other sound of another vehicle, it chases me. Mm-hmm. They make those kind of associations.
0: <laughs> I'd like to stay with that for a moment just with regard to this visual thinking that you're talking about. Could you g- give me a little more of a description as to how that works for you and w- what you are seeing?
1: Well, when I talk about things, I'm, okay, thinking about the plane I got on this morning. I'm seeing lining up at the gate B-10 uh, at the Cleveland Airport. Mm-hmm. I play back pictures or, if you ask me about something, why don't you get ask me, uh, give me some keywords that are not something I can see here in the studio and not something ordinary, you know, like house or car.
0: All right, duck.
1: Well, I'm seeing some duck decoys. I was in a hotel in Minnesota and they had a duck decoy uh, museum set up in the rooms. <laughs> so, that was the first thing that came up. I'm now seeing the Canada geese that's kind of – they're not ducks. I know that. But I'm now seeing Canada geese around on our campus. Now I'm seeing an interesting behavior change in the Canada geese. When I first came to a Colorado State, that would be 27 years ago, the Canada geese all flocked. But now they know they're protected. So single pairs of Canada geese, just pairs alone, are now seen around on my campus, and I've seen that in other places too. Fish. Well, I went fishing as a kid. What I tend to do is to bring up um, childhood memories or something I experienced really, really recently.
0: Is this something that's been with you as long as you can remember? Well, that's
1: the way I think. And it wasn't until I got into my 30s that I started to understand that maybe other people didn't think the same way. And I remember one time asking a speech therapist, think about a church steeple, how does it come into your mind? And she just goes, vague, pointy thing. Mm -hmm. I have no vague, pointy thing. Mm -hmm. I see specific. And the other thing that's interesting about how I think is the same way an artificial intelligence program thinks. It's bottom up. Concepts are formed with specific examples. And I have another book called The Autistic Brain, Mm -hmm. where I talk about visual thinking, where you think in photographs, then the mathematical mind. They think in patterns, not in pictures. And then word thinkers, Mm -hmm. and there's scientific evidence for those different kinds of thinking.
0: You mentioned artificial intelligence again, and I understand what you're saying about jobs being lost as a result of it. There are a lot of people who fear that this could become so prominent and so pronounced that the artificial intelligence could take over and could step on us the way we step on ants.
1: Well, I don't think it's going to fix the track switches in the New York subway. And that's something they need to do. I don't think it's going to fix the water mains in Pittsburgh. I I stayed at the Pittsburgh Sheraton less than a month ago, and the water mains broke. The the entire hotel had no water at all. And we almost had to do a 900-person conference with porta-potties. Wouldn't have that been a big mess. These are experiences that I've just had in the last month. Fortunately, they got the water back on.
0: Uh, Glad to hear that. But they
1: almost didn't.
0: Back to the visual thinking, Uh, you mentioned uh, your interest in cattle and horses early on. But uh, what you detected in animals and what they saw actually led to something else. As as I recollect our previous conversations, that is, it enabled you to find a more humane way to slaughter these animals.
1: Well, I've worked a lot on the facilities. I've learned a lot over the years. And when I first started working on equipment in my 20s, I thought I could fix everything with engineering. want to make it very plain, engineering does not replace management. And the thing that I did that probably improved slaughter plants the most was a very simple scoring system I developed. And that scoring system was used by McDonald's and Wendy's, and this was almost 20 years ago now, to evaluate the plants, where you have to figure out what are the really important things to measure. It's sort of like traffic rules. If you only enforced five traffic rules, you probably get ninety five percent of your public safety. The trick is which five do you enforce? Mm.
0: You and uh, coming up with this with this concept and, and realizing it, it takes us back to the book because you had. Well, I think you called it a squeeze box as a kid that you invented. Yeah, because- I
1: built that and the um, it worked with air cylinders, regular industrial air cylinders. And I looked at how the equipment worked at the dairy that I worked in, and, and I, I figured it out. Uh, I and the drawings for that actually are in Calling All Minds. That's really complicated. Very complicated. Uh, because I I like to show off drawings. Because when I first got started, people thought I was really stupid because I was so socially awkward. So the way I sold jobs and I started out one little project at a time, I'd show people my drawings. And I'd show people a really professionally made brochure, pages of pictures. I call it showing a portfolio. 30-second wow. Put a big drawing out in front of, in front of them and they'd go, Oh, you did that? Maybe you aren't so stupid after all. In other words, I learned to sell my work rather than myself.
0: Explain to folks though, if you would, why, how the squeeze box came about, because it was something that was for you, not for animals.
1: Well, actually, I actually got the idea from a squeeze chute that's used to hold wild cattle. Still, after seeing them handled at the next door neighbors to my aunt's ranch, so sort of taking a new use for uh, you know, new use for uh, uh, an old thing, hmm. and. Uh, Then I asked my science teacher if I could patent it, and he said, well, you can't patent a new use for an old thing. But now patent law has changed. If patent law was the, you know, in the 60s had been the way it is now, I could have patented it.
0: But you wanted it for yourself because you had found by uh, being on the sofa and being kind of pressed by pillows, you were more comfortable. Some individuals,
1: pressure really does help them. Mm -hmm. In fact, the squeeze machine became the basis for the idea of the Thunder Shirt, a pressure garment for dogs. And a really good friend of mine named Camille King did a really good study, and she found that uh you put the thunder shirt on a dog, leave it alone in a kennel, it does calm it down and She and I worked together on a scientific paper on that
0: Another thing I wanted to talk to you about because uh, your name came up in a an article I read recently about the wholesale slaughter of thoroughbred horses that are being sent to Mexico by the tens of thousands and slaughtered very inhumanely. Well, there
1: are a lot of problems with stuff that's going on with with slaughter in Mexico. One of the problems we've got with issues such as this is they've gotten so heated that even even trying to solve it logically is difficult. So Mm -hmm. I'd rather talk about kids' projects because the problem you've got with some of these issues is they've gotten so heated Mm -hmm. that you can't get anything done. So I'd rather work on something where I can get something done, like getting kids interested in making things and having good careers.
0: What other things are you working on now? I mean, you don't sit still. You've got uh, 12 or 13 books out. What What's next?
1: Well, I'm past retirement age. <laughs> and so one of the things I'm really interested right now is I want to see those kids that are quirky and different uh, be successful. I'm seeing too many of these kids getting too babied and they're um, – Uh, not learning basic skills. I just read about a fascinating program at one of the universities in Georgia where they're taking students that they call academically at risk, and they're putting them into a really intensive program where before they come to school, they're going to learn financial literacy, they're going to learn time management, and then they use a computer program, probably an artificial intelligence program, to track their grades. And when they fail the first quiz, the advisor is emailing them and calling them in for a meeting, and they've greatly improved the graduation rates. I found that just fascinating. You know, working with these students before they flunk out of school when they're giving the first indication that they're having problems.
0: It's critical. It's absolutely critical in this day and age that we we nip any problems in the bud. Don't you think?
1: Well, absolutely. And you know, sometimes you don't know where you're going to go, but I've been had some really good times just talking to kids about you know, just inventing things in general. Uh, Lots of emphasis on my childhood aviation projects. Mm -hmm. My PowerPoint, I looked up all these different winglets that got on airplanes and showing that to second graders. Uh,
0: Time is winding down, but I wanted to ask you where you think we are now, given your uh, activism in the field of autism. I'm saying too many
1: kids. See, for me right now, I'm going back and forth between, okay, right now the school world, the autism world, Mm -hmm. and then also the skilled trades Mm -hmm. world. And I worked with many quirky guys that are very creative in steelwork and in equipment design, making all kinds of uh, equipment. And those kids would be in special ed today. What would happen to those people today? Einstein had no language till age three. Jane Goodall only had a two-year secretarial degree. Mm. Thomas Edison was a hyperactive adult high school dropout. <laughs> I'm seeing too many smart kids that are kind of different. And I worked with these people. They're all 50 years old and up now. And I'm, you know, the problem with the autism diagnosis is they kept changing it. When I was originally, you know, earlier on diagnosed, a kid had to have speech delay, obvious speech delay to get diagnosed with autism. Now you're just socially awkward. You get diagnosed with, with autism. You're nine years old. You don't have many friends. You can't get any services in the school without a label. But I'm seeing too many kids being the label. Now I've got to tell you about my trip to NASA and Cape Kennedy. I uh, talked to a guy down there who has Tourette's. He's designing a Mars launch platform. And I'm going, what would you rather be, Mr. Tourette's or Mr. Mars launch platform? And autism is an important part of who I am. But having an interesting career, that comes first. And too many kids are sort of becoming their label. They're getting overprotected. And uh, when I suggest simple things like he should go in the store and buy some printer paper – the mom is having problems with letting go. The other problem we've got with the autism diagnosis now is you're going all the way from Silicon Valley geniuses, and half of those are on the spectrum. I've been there. I've seen them undiagnosed mm-hmm. to somebody with very, very severe challenges. And it all has the same name.
0: Are we better understanding autism today than we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago?
1: Well, we're getting a lot more kids diagnosed with it, and some mm-hmm. of it is changing the label. You see, if you've got tuberculosis, you've got tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. And there's a definitive lab test for it. They can even tell you whether you have the resistant strain or not. Autism diagnosis, ADHD diagnosis, and some of these things, it's half science and the other half doctors squabbling in conference rooms over the label. And uh, I'm trained as a hardcore biological scientist. And, and, uh, but you see, I see pictures And I'm seeing skilled tradespeople. I work with brilliant people that invented all kinds of things. I went into a food factory that looked like Willy Wonka's stainless steel Wonderland. (laughs) And the guy started out cleaning dairy processing equipment. And when he took it apart to clean it, he figured out how it worked.
0: Well, you know, we have to end it there. I I am so uh, impressed by your energy as we sit here talking. Uh, You talk about retiring. You're not going to retire, are you?
1: Well, one day I'll probably just have a heart attack.
0: Well, I hope it's a long, long way down the road. Temple Grandin, thank you so much for being with us. The book, Calling All Minds, How to Think and Create Like an Inventor. And let me remind our audience that uh, Temple Grandin is appearing tonight at 7 o'clock at the St. Louis County Library on Lindbergh. That is sold out. However, the event is going to be streamed by HEC-TV, so you can watch it at home. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.